You love to see a news story like this. So let's start the show with a great story. As we start recording today, Strike, the Bitcoin-only app that's on the Lightning Network, has announced a pilot program with Clover point-of-sale devices. Now, Clover are those LCD screen, little white point-of-sale devices that kind of look sleek and high-end. And there's a 90-day rollout of Lightning integration, not Strike integration, but Lightning integration for several of their devices around the country. Are these the little devices where I swipe my card to buy something because, of course, the business doesn't take cash anymore, and then they spin the device around at me, and now they hard sell me on giving a 20% gratuity to someone who just took my payment to hand me a loaf of bread or something like that? Yeah, that's definitely one of their... It almost looks like a tablet, that unit that you're talking about. They have several different ones, but the unit you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> they, they also make one that comes out to like your table. If you've ever paid for dinner or lunch at a table, that's a, a Clover device, most likely. You're assuming the Bitcoin dad with a baby can afford to eat at a sit-down <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> oh, you think it's bad with one baby? You should see with three of them. Oh my gosh. You want an inflation index measurement. It's my, my restaurant bills. But this is pretty exciting. And I think the cool thing here dad is that they didn't just it's not like a strike api and you have to use the strike app it is lightning integration and um to that end like they've even demoed using the cash app you know jack Mahler's demonstrated using the cash app to make a purchase on a clover point of sales device which that would technically be one of strikes competitors it's super cool and i don't know what the business logic for strike to do that is but in terms of value to the business to the consumer using that product plugging into an open payment network that doesn't have a walled garden with a middleman taking a fee on every transaction is going to be much less friction a cheaper experience i think in time that will be a really great payment option everywhere not just in places like el salvador in one of the demos they do as well think about this for a second they do a lightning payment where the individual uses their own tour node so it's like their own app i think maybe they're using zeus i don't know for sure because it's a quick video and their node is on tour and they still do the transaction at the point of sales device so it could be everything from somebody using the integrated strike experience to guys like you and me who are using our own nodes behind tour that's a powerful option that's the you know kind of the thing about a light uh lightning network but i think the business opportunity for strike to your point there is jack stated before he thinks their way of solving that problem isn't by making things proprietary but by building the best lightning experience so he thinks and i think they do have a very good lightning app but he thinks the mission there is to create a lightning app that everyday humans can use and if they have that they don't need to worry about the the network being an open protocol or proprietary protocol yeah it's definitely a new risky open source mindset to running a business. And I think that's great because if you look at all of these fintech companies, Stripe comes to mind. All they are doing is credit card payment processing and then trying to shave a couple bips off of the transaction fee. That's fundamentally all of their innovation. And there is, you know, that's not really innovation. The real innovation was done, frankly, in the 1980s when Visa built and MasterCard built out global data networks to create local data centers relatively close to the payments that were being made so that they could cash, store, 
and then transmit payments to their central clearinghouses to sort of do financial financial reconciliation. They invented a centralized system that does what the Bitcoin blockchain does, and it involved very high-end compute and satellites and whatnot. But that was a proprietary payment network, and it works pretty well to the extent that no one who uses it really understands how it works or what it's doing. And so all of these fintech companies, they're trying to just like, you know, quite cheaply shave a couple bips off of the processing fee that Visa or MasterCard or whoever charges. And I don't see the innovation there, frankly. Whereas with Lightning, we have a completely different model that's open, anyone can participate. And the analogy to using the Clover terminal with Lightning and your own node is you come up to the terminal and the credit card you pull out is one you created yourself and it still works. That's really cool. It is because the transactions are finalized. You know, the technology is sound. So if you got some weird Raspberry Pi, you know, crazy ass setup where you have your uh, sats, you can still go buy whatever it is with that because the network verifies that the transaction is complete. Now, Jack does stress this isn't available on all Clover merchants. It's just a 90 day pilot period. He says that over the next 90 days, they're going to measure settlement speeds plus costs compared to other networks and then track new lightning business that the merchants got because they wanted to test out lightning. So if people go out and try this where it is available, once we find out those locations, that's going to be factored into the metrics. He says after the pilot, they're going to launch the Clover app store and look to integrate directly into Clover. The idea being that that'll enable lightning as an accepted payment network for all Clover merchants by default sitting right next to like the Visa option and the MasterCard option. So kind of going to be a little gradual and then boom, it's going to be available. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 27th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with... Oh, um, me, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. This week felt very slow, but as we started putting together the show doc, it got huge really, really fast. So we're going to be covering some drama in the debate around the next Ethereum upgrade, not just because it's funny, but also because it really demonstrates some of the complexities with the way that Ethereum has tried to sort of lap Bitcoin in terms of development speed and adding new features and capabilities to their blockchain. There's also news that Prime Trust, the crypto custodian that services many prominent Bitcoin companies, is withdrawing from Texas. Is that part of a bigger story or is it a more local one? We'll cover that. And then I think our large story this week has to do with the White House statement on a digital asset roadmap. Kind of an interesting take and a look at where policy in the United States is leaning towards digital assets. And there's a link to a very dense document that we debated for a long time before we aired about a new federal research and development agenda around digital assets. And it's hard to parse what it actually means, but there are some interesting takeaways there. In technology, Okla and Compass Mining have made a 20-year commercial partnership to launch advanced fission-powered Bitcoin mining. Goodness, I didn't know that fission power was a thing, so we'll get into that. And then in Bitcoin education, we have the latest Bitcoin Optech, which contains some new upgrades and discussions from Bitcoin Stack Exchange. And then we'll end the show with some boosts. My favorite part. Now, Chris, why is it that Ethereum always has these funky names for their upgrades? Shanghai, Constantinople, 
What's going on there? You've been in the space longer than me. Do you remember where this started? Well, I can tell you my honest opinion is that the Ethereum project likes to pretend it's run by intellectuals. Uh, That's my honest opinion. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Right now, the latest Ethereum update has to do with allowing people to unstake their coins from this new proof of stake consensus mechanism that they implemented last year. Sorry, what, Dad? Ethereum stakers can't withdraw their coins? Yes, that's right. When you staked your Ethereum on Lido, a staking service, or on your own node, if you're freaking crazy, because that seems incredibly risky, because you could lose your coins if your internet goes out. The protocol did not actually allow you to unstake your coins and move them around or sell them. This is kind of in keeping with Ethereum's upgrade philosophy of always reducing liquidity when they make an upgrade. There's always this sort of desire to lock up coins, lock up funds, kind of reduce people's ability to sell. And, you know, one way to view that is that the developers are trying to goose the price higher by reducing people's ability to sell out. Another way of viewing that may maybe the same perspective is that Ethereum is a long-term exit liquidity play by Vitalik, Joe Lubin, and other insiders who own the majority of Ethereum and keep on trying to convince newcomers to come into Ethereum, lock up their coins so Joe Lubin and Vitalik can sell them their coins and get some real money, probably Bitcoin. Oh, I think they just want to sell all along the way. They want to build a little empire that keeps them rich, keeps their family and friends rich. You know, the new it's a new tech business and uh, tech businesses, they want to go on and on and on. But, you know, I think we should probably put this entire conversation in perspective because technically an ambitious ETH holder has been able to stake their coins since the beacon chain went online in 2020. So there are people, lots of them, that have had their ETH locked up with absolutely no means to withdraw them since the year 2020. (laughs) Can we just reflect on that for a second? How wild that is to just give up your coins like that? It's just antithetical to a Bitcoiner's philosophy. Um, Many stakers, when they did that, had the expectation that withdrawals would have been enabled last year. But we didn't even get the actual production merge until last year. And, you know, it's hard to really know, but it's estimated that uh, about $26 billion worth of Ethereum in U.S. greenbacks is on the beacon chain. Roughly about 14% of the total supply is currently locked up in staking pools that cannot be removed. And Ethereum has fallen in price quite a lot since the bull market highs. And that's even considering that 14% of the supply is completely locked up and can't be sold. So it seems to me that if you enabled the ability to unstake coins and move them around and sell them, you'd probably also be enabling a huge amount of selling of Ethereum into a bear market, which might crater the price further, wouldn't you say? That's what you would expect, right? Um, the diehards believe that uh, it will it'll give the confidence to the institutional investor and we'll have more stakers. I don't know if I believe that. That seems like a bit of a pipe dream. To your point, Dad, when they first enabled staking back in 2020, Ethereum was around $600. So people had to watch their Ethereum go up to a high 
of $4,800 in November of last year. In just a little over a year and a few months ago, Ethereum was worth $4,800. And those people who got in and staked $600 couldn't withdraw that. And then it stayed around that high for several weeks, all the way until just about the end of December when it began to crash down and it continues to crash down and they don't get access to their funds. If they had a life event come up, if they had to, if they had to pay for an emergency surgery, something, you know, a tree fell on their house, family member needed help. They couldn't get access to those funds. They had to watch them go parabolic and then watch them crash down again. And this is what drove many stakers to stake through a centralized service like Lido, which I think apparently is holding something like 70% of all staked coins right now. So all of that staked Ethereum is actually under the control of a centralized entity. And then they issued a staked Ethereum token that you could then sell and is, you know, theoretically redeemable to Lido for actual Ethereum on the beacon chain that can't really be withdrawn. Right. So how could you actually ever call that? I mean, it's just crazy. Paper, that's paper Ethereum is what you're creating. Yeah. And there's every incentive to centralized staking because as you can see, if I stake on my own, there's a lot of liquidity risk and I lose the ability to sell my coins. And that's the whole point of staking. Yeah. And you're not going to have your own derivative coin that other people buy into. Right. Because I would issue my derivative coin for my, what is it, 15 Ethereum or something. So no one else would want that coin. It wouldn't be very useful for them to take my dad Ethereum token and try to trade it for real Ethereum. Other other vendors or people would be like, what is this thing? I, I've never heard of the dad ethereum token would be would be the acronym would be death <laughs> my, my death coin <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of perfect the thing is that's the entire point of staking the whole point of staking is that because i've locked up my funds now i really care about the future of ethereum and i'm just going to be such a good custodian of ethereum when in fact the opposite happened it turns out that immediately someone figured out okay well if i accept deposits and stake them on your behalf and give you a derivative token Everyone wants to use my service because if we ignore the custody risk issues, there's network effect for everyone using the same Ethereum derivative token. And that's exactly what happened. It's also worth pointing out that the network incentives in terms of pricing and transaction pricing have made it such that the network of a proof of stake system with Ethereum has incentivized around using OFAC compliant systems. These are systems that follow the sanctions as put forth by the U.S. federal government. Now, imagine, imagine if all of the world, if the world's currency was based on Ethereum and they were following the local law of the U.S. government. I could see a lot of countries that have an issue with that. But nonetheless, we have a massive centralization around OFAC compliant processors because of the natural economic incentives of the transactions and the gas fees on the Ethereum network. Right. And you can check this out on, is it mevwatch.info? And this, I mean, this gets really complicated really fast because the way that OFAC compliance works its way into Ethereum consensus is actually through these MEV boost relays. So Ethereum validators, they don't necessarily build their blocks themselves because if they just advertise that they're accepting blocks, they can connect to a marketplace where people provide, like pay them to mine a certain block. And why you would want to do this? Well, there are very complicated reasons for it. And the TLDR is it's a way to create more middlemen, more speculation. And it also adds complete compliance with the U.S. Treasury's 
Office of Foreign Asset Control List. So if anyone thought that the point of a cryptocurrency was to have a neutral money that was beyond the control of any one party, well, Ethereum fails that definition. And now, of course, since for some it's been years since they staked their Ethereum and they'd like to cash it out before it's, you know, we're in a recession and it's worth even less. There's a lot of pressure on the project to deliver on the ability to withdraw because they promised after the merge was done, that would be the focus of the next update. And that next update is supposed to land sometime around February. But surprise, surprise, there's disagreement amongst Ethereum developers. And I don't know if the disagreement is that interesting. It's a pretty reasonable development conversation about do we implement withdrawals as soon as possible and create a lot of technical debt that could take years to resolve? Or do we delay the withdrawal function a little longer so we can build it better, test it more? You know, we don't really have a point of view on what they should do because the fact that they've allowed their development culture and their community to centralize around periodic hard forks means that, uh, you know, frankly, it's not particularly decentralized. And people like there are people with names who are making decisions. There's a guy named Zoltu who's saying, let's slow it down. And then there's someone saying uh, named Danny Ryan, who is saying, no, we need to do it for the users. And so Bitcoin has flame wars and loud, messy consensus in public too. But what's different is in Bitcoin, devs create the software and then they throw it over the wall and see if the nodes will run it. In Ethereum, the devs fight it out and whatever they decide is what will be run because Ethereum, it does, it works differently. There aren't users running nodes on Ethereum because running full nodes is so difficult and so costly. So they just don't have a decentralized network. They have kind of this faux decentralized network with centralized development. And that enables them to do some things that are kind of technically impressive. Like, I guess it's pretty cool in a sense that they could swap out their consensus mechanism from proof of work to proof of stake and the entire network didn't explode. That's pretty cool that they were able to do that at the same time. You know, does Ethereum actually function as a neutral money? No. Not many decentralized projects would make a transition like that without a few bumps and bruises. What really kind of strikes me about the conversation right now is they're basically under social pressure by Ethereum users. There are advocates in the development team that are arguing for doing things the right way. Essentially, if they enable staking now and then they change the way some of these transactions are encoded because they're still changing absolute fundamentals about Ethereum, even right now, they're worried that they will have to go back and somehow retroactively accommodate the fact that the older kind of encoding is now enshrined in their blockchain. And they suspect that it's going to create an enormous amount of work for them in the future to solve this problem. And the ironic thing here is that they even have to make this decision, right? This is a situation that Bitcoin will never face because Bitcoin will never, ever, ever have this awkward social pressure where users are unable to withdraw their funds. This is never going to exist in a proof of work system. And so it creates these kind of negative incentives on the development team because users need their and want their funds, but they also want to build the system in a way that doesn't create problems for them in the future. And this Zoltu guy and the other individual, that's ex exactly the problem. One key quote I pulled here. 
Uh, Zoltu says, quote, it feels like we're not thinking about the long term health of Ethereum. We're thinking, how do we do what the public wants today? They should never have been in this position to begin with. And the reason they are in this position is because they told people, don't worry about withdrawing your funds. We'll sort it out by June 2022 or whatever. And then they delayed the merge. They delayed all these things. And eventually now they realize that they've kind of broken the Ethereum social contract. And now they're scrambling to make sure that their users don't think, gosh, this is not a credible project anymore. Whereas Bitcoin never strays from its fundamental principles of decentralization and messy, rough consensus. And that's why Bitcoin is known as a toxic community, an adversarial environment, and is a decentralized, chaotic mess. There's no Bitcoin marketing foundation, unlike Ethereum, where there is consensus and other Ethereum groups that probably employ most of the developers. And lobbying efforts. Yeah, very much so, right? It's um, the best idea wins kind of thing. And one last quote that I thought was really telling. This is it. This is my last one. Quote, I feel like as core devs, our job is to think about the long-term health of Ethereum and not capitulate to people's lobbying or demands. How about that? Sounds like you're in charge. Yeah. Sounds like they have the ability to capitulate and change and do things people demand, doesn't it? Isn't that sort of the implication there? (laughs) Isn't that great? They come right out and say it without saying it, you know? Tell me you're centralized without telling me you're actually centralized. (laughs) That might be an episode title. There is also news, an incredibly short statement from the Prime Trust website that Prime Trust is withdrawing from Texas. So what does that mean? Prime Trust is a digital asset custodian. They essentially hold digital assets for crypto businesses, including some prominent Bitcoin businesses. And there's a very good reason to use someone like Prime Trust if you're a business, because presumably Prime Trust has thought very hard about custody and has redundant, safe, audited security systems in place to custody assets. If you're a small company, you really don't want to roll your own security. It's costly. It's a lot of mental overhead. And if you screw it up, at best, your customers' funds will be stolen and your business will be over. At worst, your customer funds are stolen and you go to jail. So Prime Trust is definitely fulfilling a important service for crypto businesses. But there's also been some, I feel like they've come up before. Weren't Prime Trust involved in the FTX debacle because they made political contributions for Sam Bankman-Fried? Yeah, like there was a line item on there for Prime Trust. I don't think like Prime Trust had any debt associated like with FTX or anything like they, they weren't borrowing money from FTX, but there was some kind of exchange of funds that had happened between the two companies. Now, I could see it as, I I guess, the beneficial like side of like, if I was going to give them the, you know, my, my most generous interpretation, I guess that might be they were lobbying for the company to consider Bitcoin more than all the crap coins that they seem to want to sell on FTX. Like perhaps they were attempting to buy influence and remind Sam that Bitcoin's a thing. Although who knows? It's so complicated. I feel like books should be written on that and I would look forward to reading them. Prime Trust has a one line press release on their website. Prime Trust has ceased all 
all business in Texas effective January 31st, 2023. That's odd because that's in the future as we record that, but they've written the sentence in the past tense. So I'm having trouble parsing it. But essentially what happened was the way that Prime Trust is regulatory compliant in the US is they apply for money transmitter licenses in every state where they operate. And a money transmitter license is a license. It's not a banking license, but it's the sort of license that a business like Western Union or MoneyGram has a a business where you can go there and hand them a hundred bucks and they'll send this hundred bucks somewhere for you so they can transmit money. Obviously, in legacy finance, transmitting money also means custodying money, but you're not a bank. You're not allowed to make loans and, and do other sort of financial activities. It seems that Prime Trust had a application in the works to be a money transmitter in Texas. And they, I guess they got the information that they would not be granted their current application. And so they withdrew it and attempted to reapply very quickly. But in the meantime, they realized that they were out of compliance offering services in Texas, and they've shut down their operations there. And so this means that some Bitcoin businesses that rely on them as the back end that holds their Bitcoin will no longer be able to offer services in Texas. I see probably Swan being the number one if you're in Texas and you DCA through Swan. I know some people out there use the Fold card. That's also been impacted by this. Prime Trust is a the biggest name probably in the backend services for the Bitcoin biz. And they have their license disclosures page on their website where you can see the jurisdictions, the license, the state agency. And um, man, when you go through this, I wonder if is if maybe 70% of the reason Prime Trust even has to exist is just all this licensing and all these all of these regulatory body engagements. It is a massive job. If you want to offer services, financial services to people that are just anywhere on the web on any any one of these states, especially if you're just trying to even if you just limit to US customers, say nothing about the rest of the world. It is a massive job to orchestrate the licensing and regulations across all those individual states. And it creates a lot of cost. That's probably creates Prime's primary value right there. 100%. They deal with the regulatory complication. And that's what makes finance and digital monetary transactions that should be free. We understand that transmitting bits across the world via a communications network is pretty cheap. So why is it so expensive? And part of that is regulatory compliance, for sure. So I think that this is just sort of a interesting little tidbit, because this is not, in my understanding, part of any larger US federal attack on crypto businesses or Bitcoin businesses. It seems to be a very specific Texas compliance issue at the state level that Prime did not do correctly or they got unlucky on or something. Yeah, they do say they plan to correct something or change something and resubmit soon. So they may be back in Texas. But in the meantime, if your DCAing gets broken in the Lone Star State, you know why. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Let us know what you use for DCAing. I'd be curious. I'm still waiting for that uh, golden goose, the DCA that you can do with no KYC. I think that our main article this week is the White House's Roadmap to Mitigate Cryptocurrencies Risk Report. This is sort of breaking news. And we were just reading it before the show. And man, it's kind of an emotional roller coaster going through this report. What do you think? That's a good way to put it. There's not very many episodes where I'm feeling bullish on Ethereum 
And uh, even after all the things we just said about it, after reading this White House statement on digital assets, followed up, of course, by the uh, Federal Register's paper, it just really feels like this is going to be a slog. And the proof of work lobby seems to have made their influence. Now, before we jump to the conclusion, this report comes out of the White House's guidance, I believe, last year to pursue several studies of what's happening in the cryptocurrency digital asset space. And as we predicted last year, the blowups, the fraud, the total mess of FTX and Celsius and Voyager and Genesis digital assets, all of these custody disasters that really have very little to do with cryptocurrency and are more about the inherent risk of one party custodying your assets and then doing something with them, usually some kind of lending. We knew that that crisis would not go to waste when it came to regulators and people who are hostile to Bitcoin trying to have a field day and discrediting all of the cool things that Bitcoin does. And so this report is definitely written with a mind to protecting the public and the banking system from the risks of cryptocurrencies. And to a certain degree, I agree with that sentiment because I think that the legacy banking system is structurally fragile. The way that contagion and risk spreads through the system means that as you have more participants, each doing various businesses, some risky, some safe, relatively, when a risky business blows up, it can negatively impact even very healthy businesses and maybe cause them to suffer liquidity or insolvency risk. So I think limiting that risk in traditional finance is a very reasonable goal. But then the report veers in a darker direction. Dun, dun, dun. The uh, report is part of this statement from the White House that came out today, right? The administration's roadmap to mitigate cryptocurrencies risks. This is put out on the whitehouse.gov website, which, of course, we'll have a link to in the show notes, which also links to this paper from the Federal Res uh, Register, which is titled Request for Information, Digital Asset Research and Development. And it is a doozy. There's, I counted, CBDCs are mentioned 18 times in this report. Bitcoin is mentioned zero, but it is inferred to constantly throughout the report, but generally in its energy consumption. And it also talks about how research has typically been fragmented and kind of gross, you know, because of the plebs that have been doing it. Now it's time for the adults to do the research in a more comprehensive R&D approach that provides a concrete area of focus forwards towards achieving a holistic vision of digital assets in the ecosystem that embodies democratic values and other key priorities. And as you read the report, you realize that democratic values means basically OFAC compliance. Um, they want to get a, basically a report put together by the end of the year that will inform the 2024 budget for the federal government, where amongst other agencies like the Department of Science and others, they are going to help fund priorities that they have identified in the digital asset marketplace. And uh, as they put it, they will direct federal resources and expertise towards achieving those priorities. For example, some of those priorities can be, they list some of them, and this is a direct quote. For example, while some digital assets can consume a lot of energy, aka Bitcoin, their underlying technology may support easier integration and coordination of clean energy resources, such as by providing a better ledger for the authentication, participation, 
and remuneration of beneficial services from a distributed energy resources, such as electrical vehicles, connected appliances and devices, and others on a smart grid. This sounds like Web3, like Web3 cryptocurrency IoT, right? It basically reads like where where a lot of a lot of the NPCs get where they're like, okay, well, blockchain good, but Bitcoin bad because of energy use. Bitcoin bad, but blockchain good. That's what this report reads like. And they kind of like hint at how this technology is good, but the Bitcoin version's bad. But yeah, maybe there's this hive thing over here or Ethereum over here when they talk about interacting with, you know, they kind of brag about how the US is the best at uh, enforcing financial law and whatever digital technology we go with needs to kind of be in that spirit as well. And they're going to direct federal resources at it. Well, eventually. So the White House is unveiling a roadmap and this roadmap has a couple different parts. One part is a research and development agenda that, I mean, there's so much in there, most of it bad, and it really reads like they're kind of doing the legwork to eventually build a central bank digital currency, possibly, it seems to be hinted at. There's a lot of stuff about environmental consciousness and environmentally friendly consensus. You know, honestly, I don't think those words mean too much anymore because as we've been learning about the way our world actually works, the majority of energy in the world is provided by fossil fuels and then on top of that, hydropower and then on top of that, nuclear and then renewable energy is just this sort of like little skin on top of the apple. It's just not a huge amount of our energy mix. And so, you know, you can talk about it all you want, but show me the money. And the real money seems to still be in making all the useful stuff with fossil fuels, but do it in China and India so they get to breathe the smoke and therefore the developed world is going green. That's not really green. You know, it's moving the pollution somewhere else and that's problematic. So this research and development report is kind of a long-term sort of attempt to, I don't know, maybe sort of exert pressure on developments in the cryptocurrency space. It's pretty clueless. It doesn't really understand that, yes, development has been fragmented because it's decentralized. That's a feature, not a bug. And they're now going to try and centralize it and, you know, remove the inefficiency. Good luck with that. But the other thing that this White House document does is basically chastise Congress. They're saying Congress needs to get its act together and expand regulators' powers to prevent misuse of customer assets. And they need to increase the penalties for illicit financial transactions, which is nuts crazy. I mean, you do anything with money that the government says is non-compliant and terrible things can happen to you already. I don't really think we need a bigger stick there. The stick's pretty big already. So this is kind of just a, a general roadmap, a general framework. But one thing that I found interesting is at no point does this document say we need to ban this thing. It's too risky. It is all about co-opting it. It is all about not quite understanding that the innovation is Bitcoin, but there is a sense that they know there's an innovation there and they want to own it. They want it to be a part of U.S. government policy, U.S. economic development. There might even be a national security implication here too. So on the one hand, there's a lot of stuff in here that is definitely kind of, you read it and you roll your eyes and you think, oh man, did the Ethereum Foundation help them write this stuff about environmentally friendly consensus? On the flip side, you've got India and China literally saying they want to ban cryptocurrency and prosecute people who use it. So I would say on the global stage, the U.S. seems pretty reasonable in its approach to dealing with cryptocurrency and digital assets. 
Yeah, it's not a declaration of war at all. I mean, they say it, it would be a grave mistake to enact legislation that reverses course and deepens the ties between cryptocurrencies and the broader financial system. A grave mistake. That's pretty strong language from the White House. So it, it does get opinionated there. Right. And it's also completely out of touch because Fidelity and uh, gosh, what is the other bank? Bank of New York Mellon something. These are the, some of the largest custodians in the world, and they are all in on Bitcoin. They're doing Bitcoin custody already. That said, if we give the writer of this document the benefit of the doubt, they might be talking about basically incorporating crypto assets that settle instantly into a legacy financial system that settles in seven days. And that is incredibly dangerous. And I completely agree with them there. Yeah, I think overall, it's better than a declaration of war. I'm more mixed on it. The initial communications we got from the White House, I thought were a little more positive. This round, it talks a lot more about the concerns of energy use. We really don't know. We don't know much about where this will lead, where this next series of recommendations will come, because they say in this report that in the, quote, coming months, the administration will also unveil priorities for digital asset research and development, which will help technologies powering cryptocurrencies to protect consumers by default. That sounds like they're going to have recommendations for how blockchain should be designed, implemented, implemented, which, you know, of course, is going to have an energy factor in it, which, of course, will be an issue for proof of work. But we really don't know where any of this goes, how it really impacts the market. The only thing we can take away from this that we do know is that it's not a declaration of war, like you said. And it's not just saying, let's get on board with this Bitcoin thing. Let's figure out how we can deploy the lightning network to save the environment. It is very much a much further back, much more basic beginning, making me think that I thought we would have clear regulation by 2024 by the time the presidential election came in. That was kind of my hope in general for the Biden administration. If I could have one thing that I wanted out of this administration, it would have been just to kind of get basic regulation down so consumers have some confidence. And let's move forward. By the time the next halving gets here, let's get things rolling with some real light touch, common sense regulation. And I thought maybe after that first initial positioning from the White House, that was the direction we were going in. And I felt really good about that. And I thought if you look back at President Biden's legacy, you know, 10, 20 years from now, like we look back at Bush, I'd have a lot of complaints, but I'd say that was the guy. That was the guy that, you know, got us over the hump and got institutional adoption and got the Bitcoin price really rolling. That was the guy. And, you know, you could say a lot of things about Biden, but that'd be a hell of an accomplishment for that president. And now what I see is the beginning of a decade long slog that inevitably is to try to create some sort of CBDC. Like again, like again, as mentioned 18 times in this report in the register that's attached to it. In fact, the really whole thing is there. They say here, we hope that this will be relevant and describe how the discussed R&D topic could be useful in helping a potential U.S. CBDC system align with the policy objectives for the overall USB CBDC system. So what they think they come up with for digital assets will also be influential for the CBDC. And I think this is a really long process we're beginning to watch and Bitcoin just don't care, right? Like Clover is rolling, is, is testing lightning integration. Boosts are a thing in podcast today. Websites like Stacker News and services like Noster are integrating lightning already, right? There is an economy building out today that is an open network with APIs ready to go. And it just is completely detached from this sort of like this 20 year timeline that the White House seems to want to take. The Bitcoin network and these integrations you're describing are still tiny in terms of US GDP or global GDP. At the same time, we can see how an open network doesn't have barriers to adoption. And so as it builds out, it eventually reaches some sort of critical mass and suddenly it's everywhere. And I think the visual 
representation of this is the S curve of adoption, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is you look at an S and the bottom of the S, this is the early adopters. And as the S goes up in the middle, this is sort of as adoption takes off. And then as it peaks at the top, you have the late adopters. And so where in the S curve is Bitcoin? I mean, I think we're still in the bottom part of the S. And it's maybe that's discouraging because it's already been 13 years. <laughs> or maybe that's hopeful because we're still going to see something really cool in terms of mass adoption and even greater development in this space within our lifetime. So, you know, positives and negatives, I guess. Just as a quick aside, maybe we'll toss a link in the show notes if people want to read more. But that's why I think I did like this week when Goldman Sachs had to come out and awkwardly describe Bitcoin as the best performing asset of 2023. Because it wasn't that long ago that I remember Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Bankfing in 2017 saying that Bitcoin was a vehicle for fraudsters. And then he had this stat. And oh, man, when I reread this quote, I remember how this was such an undercut to the argument about Bitcoin and how the primary argument against Bitcoin wasn't energy back in the day. It was fraud and crime, primarily because of the Silk Road. This really cut deep when Lloyd said this. Something that moves 20 percent overnight doesn't feel like a currency. It's a vehicle to propagate fraud. So that was in 2017. And that was a criticism that Bitcoiners were trying to respond to. And now it's a total non-issue because as of like November, 66% of the total Bitcoin supply hadn't moved in a year. It's totally assault. Like it was obviously a nascent thing. And now things that we just take for granted, the fact that so many people hodl Bitcoin, that nearly 70% of the supply is locked up in people's wallets in longtime hodlers wallets and doesn't move is just not even talked about anymore. But at the time, because they could take that shot against us, because they could say 20% overnight moved around. I thought that was the price. Like he was saying the price could move 20% overnight. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Even even still, then it doesn't move that much these days, right? Like that's also a thing. That's a that was also a thing that moved a lot. That is in in retrospect, the price is a lot more stable. And I find like these things, like we don't talk about it anymore because it's a solved problem, so they're no longer criticisms. And so we move on and we focus on these other criticisms and we get exasperated by them, especially me, especially as a long timer. But when I see these articles and I look back at like that 2017 article and that criticism about you know that something that moves 20% overnight doesn't feel like a currency; it's a vehicle to propagate fraud. Well, guess what? It doesn't move 20% overnight anymore so they can't throw that at us anymore and it's just not even something that gets brought up but meanwhile like hodlers are holding 66 percent of the supply hasn't moved the price is clinging on at twenty three thousand as we record right now even though we're looking at a macro situation that's a total meltdown and this white the white house just put out this report as we record right now that doesn't seem super positive yet the price remains like the price is just like a totally different issue than it was back then. And again, they don't use it to attack us anymore. They just move on to other stuff. And so when I look at this White House statement on digital assets and how they're going to give recommendations for blockchains that need to be environmentally friendly, I just th sit here and go, okay, that's great for institutional things like Ethereum seems to be setting itself up for with proof of stake and OFAC compliance. But it doesn't matter to the real solution. The real solution to this system, the thing that's outside of this entire system, it don't care. And user adoption, because of the incentives that it provides, will just continue on regardless of what these recommendations are. And if they were to go as far as to ban it because, you know, climate hysteria, it would probably just drive the price up. I'm trying to think of something to respond there. Do you agree with the sentiment that if it was banned, the price would go up? I see that argued. And I start, you know, when I look back at assets 
in the in history that have been banned, things that just get banned, just things, not assets, but just things in general, it does always tend to drive the price up. And if you look at the cannabis market here in Washington and California, it's a race to the bottom now that they've legalized pricing. And when it was illegal, the prices were much higher. I'm not sure. I, I feel like it would really only be banned at this point if the price was really going up and it looked like it was sort of an alternative investment vehicle to U.S. Treasuries or something like that. Right. As a full on war measure, they might try to ban it. But right now they, they can try to co-opt it because it's so small. Like if some huge institution or pension fund said, you know, we've done the research, we've been watching this for 10 years. And actually, when we risk weight adjust Bitcoin, it makes sense for us to hold a you know, 10% allocation in our pension fund. And like that just moves the price from, I don't know, 90K to a million dollars or something crazy. I could imagine the government freaking out and being like, we need to shut down trading of this because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, something like that. So I wonder if you would get a ban and then the price goes up or if it would always be like the price goes up and then you get a ban. But either way, I'm not really worried about a ban because what you're banning is you're banning yourself from Bitcoin. You're saying our economy is not allowed to interact with this. It's still going to be out there. It still can be traded peer to peer or in any jurisdiction where there aren't laws against it. So you're really cutting yourself off from an open network. You're not really suppressing a thing, in my opinion. I mean, maybe at the regulatory level, you could do it, but it would be pretty hard to pull that off with the political split that we have in the states now. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's why the Biden roadmap document is kind of hot air, because they're imploring Congress to work together and empower regulators in a way that both sides of the aisle do not agree on. You've got Elizabeth Warren, who wants to ban Bitcoin and make sure that regulators can have the headcount to go after all the developers or something like that. And then on the Republican side, it seems like you've got uh, various personalities who seem to think they can get some political mileage from associating with Bitcoin. What this will be is this recommendation that comes out in a few months for technology guidance for blockchains or whatever they're going to call it. And this White House statement today is talking points for people who subscribe to the Biden policy. And then you'll have other political policies that will also be argued because I think you just nailed it. If I look at this through a political lens and not through a technologist or a or Bitcoiner lens, there's a lot of language that punts everything to Congress. And that's basically the White House's way to defer responsibility, because if they get questioned, they can say, well, look, we've advocated that Congress act on this strongly. What is the White House supposed to do? Are they going to pass executive orders banning Bitcoin? That's crazy town. You know, you can't run a country by passing fiat decrees like executive orders. You need political consensus. And if there isn't political consensus, you need to cycle through the people in your Congress until you get political consensus. So we're in that process of either the entire political Congress consensus breaking down and who knows what form of government comes next, or this is just a normal correction. And after months or years of fighting, we'll eventually get a Congress that can agree on things. You know, actually, the more we talk about it, I'm actually kind of optimistic because I can imagine we'll look back in history and we'll look at this as this isn't any kind of regulation or law or decree of war against digital currencies. In fact, if anything, it solidifies that digital currencies and digital assets are here to stay. 
and that they are a legitimate market that we have to figure out how to coexist with. I don't really like all of the message, especially the focus on the OFAC compliance and environmentalism stuff that is obviously based on hysteria. But I do really like setting the foundation that this is a legitimate marketplace that is here for the long haul. The White House in Congress should take it seriously. That, I think, when we look back in years from now, is going to matter. And just to clarify your point, I don't think you're saying that you think environmentalism is hysteria. I think what you're saying is the suggestion that Bitcoin mining, which is less than it's a rounding error in terms of global energy production, could really have an impact on global warming or other environmental concerns is kind of ridiculous. Because if you want to actually reduce negative impacts on the environment from energy generation, you know, there's a lot of big fish to fry there. There's the steel industry, there's the plastic industry, there's the chemical industry, the tumble dryer industry, the concrete industry. Okay, this is where CO2 and emissions are coming from. So deal with that. You know, don't go after the thing that's not even doing 0.5% of the the thing that has enormous potential to reduce methane production and emissions on a massive scale and the thing that has the potential to actually make it economically viable for electrical companies to transition to renewables or other sources of energy and to produce enough energy to supply an economy that has things like, oh, I don't know, EVs and electrical furnaces and takes out gas stoves and puts on electric stoves. And when you do that kind of change, it creates a 4x increase in demand on electricity and you need something that makes the transition to a grid that can supply that without burning a bunch of coal possible if only there was some on-demand, flexible de- use of power that the people could just deploy. And and it could also perhaps create a secure monetary system that's decentralized at the same time that produces them revenue. I mean, I, I don't know. What could that be? Chris, that clearly doesn't exist, so I don't know why you're talking <laughs> about it. That's why I call it hysteria. You've nailed it, is they're going after something that actually has a lot of potential to fix a broad range of problems, not just the money, but also a lot of a lot of our power grid system. So I, I get I get kind of hysterical myself. I want to take a brief detour into power. And I say brief because this is a press release, not really an article. Compass Mining has announced a partnership with Okla, which is an energy startup that plans to build a small nuclear plant. And they're announcing a 20-year collaboration. And I just think that this is ridiculous on so many levels. One, we think nuclear sounds great, you know, clean energy, really minimal risk. At the same time, Compass Mining is probably not going to be here in a year, let alone 20 years. This (laughs) This is the mining company that had a bunch of miners shipped to Russia, and then their hosting provider in Russia just took them. All of the customers' miners got stolen. They're a hosting company where you would send your Bitcoin mining unit to Compass, and they would plug it in in a hosted data center and just charge a service fee. But they didn't own the data centers, and they sent a bunch of stuff to Russia, and there's not very good rule of law there. And then there was the Ukraine war. So Compass couldn't legally financially interact with Russia. And so it was a huge mess. And I think they're pretty discredited at this point. So this seems like a Hail Mary press release to generate some interest, perhaps. That was going to be, I mean, it's a little cynical, but that was going to be kind of my take is like Compass Mining's in a bad spot. Oklahoma wants some press coverage. Let's bring these two things together. A 20-year partnership is a big deal. So I mean, I can imagine. I can't imagine either one of these companies are around in twenty years because if Oakla's onto something here, they're going to get snapped up pretty quick. So. Are we going to be covering Bitcoin in twenty years? I'm not sure. 
Oh, I imagine somebody will be. Well, someone will be, but I don't think mm-hmm. the Bitcoin dad and mm-hmm. Chris will. Will be. No. I think but if we're covering it for the next couple of years, we'll probably see what happens with this story, in yeah. my opinion. But the idea here, I think, does bring up a good conversation. And and that is another way to mine Bitcoin that doesn't have a large uh, carbon footprint. One of their big things here that they talk about is they say that they are little they have these little powerhouse uh, generators that they call them. They say they can produce reliable power for up to 20 years without the need to refuel and has capabilities to turn nuclear waste into clean energy. So they're running on some of the waste byproducts of other reactors and they say it doesn't need to be refueled for 20 years if that kind of if that kind of tech is real and anywhere clears to anywhere close to production that's going to be great it's not I, yeah, I yeah, was looking exactly. up Okla. What they've done is they've applied for a permit to do something. And the permitting process to do nuclear reactors or nuclear technology is incredibly long. So in 20 years, they might have their permit approved. They might have one online. <laughs> no, Maybe. no. I mean, they might have the legal go ahead to start. And then Oof. who knows how long it'll take. So oh, it's my two cents. Well, all right. It's kind of like a, a pipe dream, I suppose. But maybe one day it'll show us the path to actual possibilities. And in the meantime, go check out the self-hosted show. That's uh, my pod over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And we just finished up the Jellyfin Challenge for January. And I think it had a surprising conclusion. And we brought Alex's wife on to get the spousal approval direct from her. I share you a few, I share a few tips that I'm using to take YouTube content and store it and archive it offline with all of the metadata, the ridiculous thumbnail, the description, all of that, and then integrate it into Jellyfin. Self-hosted.show for that. No way. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm, just came out. I will certainly be listening to that episode. Fresh episode. Search for self-hosted in your podcast app. This week's Bitcoin education covers Bitcoin Optech 235. And the main article or news item is about ephemeral anchors. Uh, this is a concept that, frankly, I was not familiar with, but it seems like a really interesting capability. Yeah, like, could you use this to, like, automatically add a tip amount to a transaction or something like that for a in-store transaction? I was trying to think of what would the practical implementation of this be. Ephemeral anchors are apparently quite similar to fee sponsorship. So it's a way of constructing transactions in a way that anyone can bump a fee in another transaction. Let's say I am buying your RV because you bought an even bigger one with your massive profits from running a global podcasting empire, and I'm super cheap, and I put a one sat per V-byte fee on that you know, $200,000 transaction. And we're sitting there in the parking lot, and you've got your new RV, there's the older RV, Lady Jupes there, and uh, you, know, you want to drive off, and you're like, oh, Jesus, Dad, you're such a cheapo. And so you go in and you just use fee sponsorship or an ephemeral anchor to bump my fee so the transaction clears. Mm. So, so that would be cool. And you could also imagine other uses, uh, like you could batch transactions uh, in an interesting way. So I think for businesses, for exchanges, you know, if they had a lot of transactions coming in from customers or counterparties, they could, and they weren't clearing, they could sort of batch them together, bump the fee and get those transactions cleared faster. So it seems that it really could be an interesting feature upgrade at a very low level in the Bitcoin network. And I think that's the kind of thing that really, you know, it provides benefits down the road, like, you know, SegWit. When SegWit rolled out, no one really understood that SegWit would reduce on-chain fee pressure dramatically 
in two years. No one knew that. So this is a sort of thing that reminds me of that, where it's like you're adding a base level functionality. It definitely could be useful, but then the real implications won't be seen for years. Yeah, it seems like the batching could potentially be useful. I mean, we see platforms like uh, Google Play and uh, Apple's App Store. They do that now. If you buy an app or two today, it doesn't do the transaction with the credit card company at the time of purchase. It does it at a, in a 24-hour interval. So it only has to deal with the fee one time for you know perhaps multiple $1 app purchases. That's interesting. I could see I could see long term all kinds of little things coming out of this. Nice to see these things continue along. There is also a little note in the object that I think everyone should read, and it links to Bitcoin Stack Exchange. 22 days ago, a PR was merged into the Bitcoin repository and mentions that you need to download the Bitcoin release text file that's been signed with some dev signatures to verify it. The issue is that the signing keys for Bitcoin Core have been moved to a different place in the repository. So this is just kind of a little bit of uh, technical FYI for those who are verifying their Bitcoin Core downloads. The signing keys are in a new place, so don't panic. You can find them. That's a little PSA right there is what that is. Indeed. And they're uh, they're organized like much better now. You know, like I'm looking at it. I can see like there's Ben the Carman, Fanquake, uh, Shores, Provost. And I guess it's because they're maybe building Bitcoin Core using reproducible builds now. So it made sense to put the keys in a different place. That's good to hear. Nice little bit of security. That way, you know, the thing you got is what they built and there wasn't anybody in between. No supply chain attack, as they call it. Yeah. Side note, this is really a benefit of the way that Linux software is distributed. I remember when I first had to verify uh, GPG signatures and hashes for software in Linux. And I remember thinking, man, this is so hard and so scary. Why can't anyone just provide a guide on the website of how to do this when I download the software? And, and now everyone has a guide on how to do it. So it's it's much more approachable. I got used to verifying software and, you know, working in a company environment where everyone's workstation is running Windows. It is mind blowing how even today in 2023, you cannot verify software on Windows. It is just not a feature to be able to confirm that this software was signed by the developer. It's just not built in. It's nuts. And even the Visual Studio Code plugin store, which is again, curated by Microsoft, it is full of malicious plugins that are basically exploits that will own your computer if you install them. And there is no way to verify them. It absolutely blows my mind that the Windows Microsoft ecosystem is this trash even today. Yikes. And this is why you got to have a cold wallet and don't keep your Bitcoin on your computer. Because one day you're going along using VS Code, you get a bad extension. Next thing you know, your Bitcoin are gone. See, a little bit of Bitcoin education right there. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. It's been a busy few weeks, so I'm a little bit behind. So if you send an email and I haven't covered it on the show, my apologies. We will get it on a later show. You can also consider joining the show Matrix channel details in the show notes. Some folks did come in hot with a boost, though, like Bitcoin Lizard, who came in with 25,000 sats. 
And he wrote, when learning about self-custody, rather than moving a small amount of actual Bitcoin, consider using TestNet. It's a great recommendation. I always use TestNet when I'm, when I'm trying something new, like using a new hardware wallet or testing a new multi-sig scheme. With TestNet, there is zero risk of accidentally sending your precious Bitcoin into the void. I always look forward to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Keep up the good work. Great, solid recommendation. Of course, you got to make sure that your wallet supports the TestNet, but uh, I think a good Bitcoin wallet will. Thanks for the big boost, Bitcoin Lizard. Testnet is a great option, and it can be enabled quite simply in many applications by simply going into settings and finding the Testnet mainnet trigger and clicking Testnet. Also in Bitcoin Core, you can go into your Bitcoin.com file, and I believe you just need to write in Testnet equals true or enabled. Might want to check that. C-dubs boosted in with 10,101 sats. Bribe sats. P.S. My last boost was supposed to be a haiku. Oh, I'm sorry, C-dubs. But thank you for the bribe sats. Magnolia Mayhem boosted in with 10,000 sats. How dare you? We are at least Eastern Bloc. I don't even remember what that's referenced to, but I like that Magnolia boosted in. I love a comment that starts with, how dare you? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's going to be something. <laughs> Our Shackelford boosted in with 5,000 sats, plus one for how to handle businesses' use of Bitcoin. Okay, we have another request for getting someone on the show who can give us some knowledge on business owners and how they can interact with Bitcoin, not have to worry or deal with the tax implications, etc. Yeah, all right. Good. I'm glad to hear there's some interest in there. Uh, and, and how do you think? How do you think you say this next one there, Dad? <laughs> uh, this is definitely from Anacalpis. Oh, Anacalpis. Okay, not was not what I was going to say. Five thousand sats just to say thanks for the insights and thanks for the calpis. <laughs> <laughs> Jin for Matik boosted in six thousand and ten sats in a double boost. I listen to the show each week during my washing dishes time. Oh, that's so funny. I often think about- It's a about lot of the- dishes then. Jeez. Yeah. It's just washing <laughs> dishes all week. It's <laughs> a lot of dishes for this whole show. During holidays, I moved successfully off from Coinbase and Binance to Albi. I came across this great Bitcoin rainbow chart. I like the recommendation you gave to start without KYC. But I'm just thinking now Albi is a web wallet. So I hope that you don't have a lot of funds in there. Yeah, yeah. Like if you've got more than, I don't know, more than you you would be sad about losing, I would not be using Albi. I'd be using, you know, maybe a Sparrow desktop wallet in a separate Bitcoin user account on your computer or a, a cold card hardware wallet with that Sparrow wallet would make it even more secure because it takes the keys off of the computer. You can also remember um, to run Albi if you if you get to this stage with your own node, that can help a little bit. But think of Albi as like spend in sats, right? Like I, I don't think I'd keep more than maybe more than you could be comfortably okay with losing. Like say if like a hundred, if losing more than a hundred bucks would make you feel sick, then don't keep more than a hundred dollars worth of sats in there. And that's when you sweep it off to your wallet. Okay. You know, and the nice thing about Albi is that they do let you set it up and they will do the custodian stuff for you, but you can move to your own back end over time. And that might be a kind of a goal if you're going to use it for that. And then, yeah, don't keep anything more than just your spending sats in there, which I, I mean, it's not to say it's a bad project, open source. I've talked to the co-founders, but I think whenever you're dealing with something that's that close to the web, you just want to be careful. Yeah, it's in the browser. You know, the browser is the car you drive around the internet with. You wouldn't put your life savings in that car. Yeah, you might have your wallet in there for going out and getting some gas and a snack. <laughs> you know, that's kind of probably the way to think about it. By the way, Jinformatique 
links to the Bitcoin rainbow chart. The Bitcoin rainbow chart is kind of a joke where you throw a rainbow over the Bitcoin price chart and, you know, it goes down into the red and then it pops up and shoots to the violet. You know, it's it, it's just a funny uh, chart about Bitcoin cycles. And I think it's kind of a critique of models like the stock to flow model, which has basically been completely debunked at this point. Mm. The second boost is I would need more practical tutorial recommendations or step-by-step guides on how to buy Bitcoin with RoboSats. I already watched two tutorials and store them securely in Sparrow for a start. That's exactly what we recommended. It's just that I have not much free time and now Bitcoin is climbing. I just need to sit down and read the quick start guide. There's so many things to grasp and I want to do it the best way. And there are a lot of YouTube videos, but it's hard to find the good ones. Thanks. Yeah. I agree. I hear you. I've been feeling like this for years now, and I don't know what to say. (laughs) Uh, I just don't think you should let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You want to have a, you know, a wallet on your computer, on a computer that you don't use for a lot of internet stuff uh, in a separate user account, maybe a Bitcoin user account that just does Bitcoin. And, you know, you want to have a Sparrow wallet or something like that, maybe Electrum if you're very old school, and you essentially send Bitcoin into that wallet and you don't do a lot of stuff in the computer around it. Um, You know, that's kind of my two cents on quickly getting started with self-custody. And you have your seed words and you back them up, you write them down, and you don't take a picture of them. You don't, you know, store those seed words in a place other people can see them. I actually had a friend I was talking with. I set him up with a blue wallet. I asked him how he was storing his seed words. And he said, oh, yeah, I just took a picture and I put them in my iCloud. And I was just like, keep your coins on Coinbase, buddy. You're not ready for this. Yeah, I mean, we've we've covered legal cases where uh, they've been able to subpoena Dropbox and Google Drive and get seed phrases and then just restore your wallet and take your, take your coins. As far as YouTubers that cover specifically the RoboSats to Sparrow, to cold card workflow that you can trust. BTC Sessions comes to mind because he has a video specifically on that workflow and I, I've watched it and it's legit. So BTC Sessions and then you can go to his channel and you can look for his uh, RoboSats videos with Sparrow. He focuses on that workflow specifically, which I think is great. Oh, that's great. It is tricky. And if you have like very specific questions about the workflow, uh, we do have a Bitcoin questions matrix chat room. So along with the Bitcoin discussion chat room that we talk about on the show all the time, there's also a separate questions channel. And just this week, I was telling, um, I can't remember who it was, but an individual in there about how I get, I go from RoboSats to uh, my cold card. And, um, you know, at some point, perhaps we could do a a little discussion around the Jam app, which I've been using to um, do my coin joins. But um, like dad said, don't go too far with it. Watch the BTC sessions video. Like you said, read the quick start guide and then just try it. I, I did a lot of consternating before I actually just tried it. And then once I tried it, it was pretty obvious as I went through it. Um, and then we got another boost. User 5123 came in with 2345 sats. How about a mostly non-KYC on-ramp? Install Blixit and burner apps, get cash, and then find a Bitcoin ATM that only needs a phone number. You wear a hat and sunglasses. You send the sats to uh, Blixit. Open a lightning channel with Blixit. Send it to RoboSats. That is a complicated, but... That is very complicated. System that works. Yeah, you can roll your own. I don't know what Blixit is. I think it's a little... It seems like it's maybe a way to... Uh, Oh yeah, when you search, nothing comes up. But I look like uh, I looked at it earlier. You know, which what you need is a, a wallet that does on chain and lightning, and I think it's one of those. It's a 
non-custodial open source lightning wallet for ios and android i know we give it crap sometimes but since we're in now we're into this far into the weeds this is honestly where i think the moon wallet m-u-u-n wallet gets a hard rap because it's doing atomic swaps from lightning to on-chain and so from robosats you can send it to your moon wallet and then moon wallet can do the atomic swap for you it you know maybe isn't the cheapest way to do it but it's dead easy and then you can go from robosats to on-chain in one hop with moon and then from moon you can send it to a coin join or a jam sesh or you can send it straight to sparrow and have it coin join you can do or not whatever but it's really very simple it's just how hard you want to make it and you know it is really really tough to get the signal out of the noise and that's why the only way i got to some of these workflows was just by testing it and trying it over time and i decided to do it on the public net because i you know some of these you don't have a choice with some of these apps and it was fine you know it cost me a few sats to figure it out maybe in total over the last year i spent a hundred bucks in sats but i have a pretty easy workflow the moment the price gets to a point where i want to buy i could have i can go from robo sats to sats in my in my sparrow wallet in 10 15 minutes no big deal wow that is fast I have been keeping an eye on PCHAP. Um, it's not available here in the States, but it, it is available for the Euro, the British pound, the Swiss franc, and the Swedish Corona. I don't know. That's probably saying that wrong. Uh, but anyways, Peach is an app for your phone, which I know some of us aren't a big fan of, but it does peer-to-peer Bitcoin transactions. It uses a two-of-two two multi-sig escrow for the transaction, which I like. And then it sets up a private encrypted chat if you need to communicate with the buyer or the seller. The buyer sends the fiat payment directly to the seller and the, re- and the receiver gets Bitcoin to their own address. And uh, the UI is, uh, I'd say it's almost, it's approachable for normies almost. Uh, It's not here in the States. I don't know if it ever will be kind of like hodl hodl, but there are options outside the States that are a little easier. It's just here in the US, we have very strict financial regulations and laws. Me Are Mortals podcast boosts in a row of ducks, two, 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 two sats. I've yet to go through your back catalog, so apologize if this has been talked about before. What's the story behind the BTC lawnmower art? I guess that is the logo for the show we're talking about? Yeah. Did you accidentally lose your Bitcoin by running over your laptop and now the IRS can't tax you for capital gains? Ha, that's funny. You know, let's go with that. That's good. (laughs) I did the lawnmower because I think Bitcoin dad, dads mow the lawn. It was a reflection into your psyche that you associate lawn mowing with dad. But also, it really looks like a stroller, too, to me. And at the time, I had a baby in a stroller, still have a baby in a stroller. So lawnmower, stroller, I like them both. I, I think that, that both kind of capture the feeling of the show, maybe. Yeah, well, kind of. What, how else do you kind of assemblize a dad without like, you know, you could go, you could take a, you could do the dad bod thing, but that's kind of mean. You could do a beard, but I don't know. That doesn't seem like it fits anymore. And some dads have great bods. That's true. We got one special boost this week. It's a little bit below our threshold. But it's so worth it. Thank you for the boost, Nat. 100 sats. Okay, 100 sats. But uh, here it goes. Please don't even consider Bitcoin as a retirement strategy. It is a highly dubious, volatile, and dangerous proposition. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting message to send to the Bitcoin dad pod, but using sats nonetheless like i love that it's 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 clearly an anti-bitcoin stance you know they think long term it's not going anywhere but they were willing to set up fountain earn a few sats and then use the lightning network to boost that in to tell us it so you kind of have to respect it in a way nat you have earned a shout out thank you very much for your sharing your opinion and we encourage you to join in the discussion and i'd also be curious nat if you do want to send us another boost what would you recommend as the alternative especially here in the states 
for somebody who's going to be retiring, say 20, 2035, what would you recommend? I'd love to know. Thank you so much, boosters. If you get some value out of the show, please consider sending a boost. Hearing from you means a lot to us. You can use the Podcast Index webpage to send a boost without changing your podcast app. You do that by installing Albi and finding the Bitcoin dad pod on the podcast index. And then you can boost right from the page. True. Or you could try out a brand new podcasting app, newpodcastapps.com. Fountain is continually updating. Podverse is cross-platform iOS, Android web, open source GPL innovating and Castomatic, which is uh, focused on the iOS ecosystem. And there's more at newpodcastapps.com. They all support the new features of the podcasting 2.0 standards, including Boost. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on January 27th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with me. It's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.